for me, Dear Genesis, this is the series that we have been in uh, for the past eight weeks, has been uh, jarring. And what I mean by jarring is it has forced me uh, to ask some serious soul-searching type of questions, both personally and pastorally. So personally, some of the questions that I have really been wrestling with is, where am I really at in relationship to God? Where am I really at? Am I just going through the motions of faith? Or is faith in God really central and the most important thing in my life? Now, obviously, I want to be able to answer the latter. And so if I answer the latter, then the next question that I've been wrestling with is, is just this. Does how I live, does how I love people, does how I interact and engage with people, the world around me, would it actually support that statement that Jesus is most central to my life? These are some of the soul-searching questions uh, that I've been going through during the Dear Genesis series. And again, that's more personally, but I've been asking pastoral questions like, how are we really doing? Not just some of us, but how are we, all of us as a church community, really doing? Are we just going through the motions where we can gather on a Sunday, we can sing a few songs and be encouraged, and we can hear a message and hopefully be encouraged or challenged or inspired? But is what God is doing here in these moments that we have together, is it actually making a difference in how we are living every moment of every day in the world that we, culture that we live in? And so, dear Genesis, it has been forcing me and hopefully all of us to examine where we really are, both individually and communally or corporately. Because with each letter that Jesus wrote to these seven different churches, each church was asked to do some soul searching of where they are really at, and consequently us as well. But what I'm learning through this series is that if I'm the one to search my own soul, if I'm the one to examine my true soul condition, well, this is what I've learned afresh. I can deceive myself into thinking I'm in a place I'm not actually in. If I'm the one who's responsible to tell you how my soul is doing, then I've learned afresh, I can deceive myself into thinking I'm in a place I'm not actually in. Maybe another way to say this is I can easily dupe myself into thinking all is well when in fact all is not well. And so the question becomes, is there anyone who would not only love us enough to have true knowledge of our soul condition, but know us not just the external of who we are and what's going on, but know us internally uh, to give us an assessment of, I know this is how you think you are, but let me love you enough and assess you, not just external, but internal as well. So thankfully, Jesus both knows us and loves us enough to help us see what we can often be blind to. But here's what I would just simply call, there's a catch. And the catch is simply this, the consequence of knowing the truth um, is that it will call for you and I to make a decision. If you and I are confronted with how we really are, if Jesus really reveals to us our true soul assessment, our true soul condition, then we're going to be confronted with a decision to make, and it's this, what will I do with what he makes known? If Jesus is going to love us enough because he knows us enough to make true our soul condition known to us, then what will I do with what he makes known? 
At the end of every single letter, there's seven letters, but at the end of every single letter that Jesus wrote, he finishes the letter by saying this, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the church. Everyone who has ears must listen. And so the question is just, what has God been saying? What has God been saying to me? What has God been saying to you? What has God been saying to all of us? in our journey through these letters to Revelation, and I think the challenge is, are we actually listening? Are we listening to what God has been trying to reveal, speak to us, whether it's encouragement or challenge? So the final letter that we're going to look at today, in many ways, is the climax of all of the letters because it calls for us to make a decision. How will we respond to what Jesus reveals to us about our true soul condition before him? Now, as we've done with each letter, what they would have done with these letters back in the first century was when the letter was read, uh, everyone in the community would stand. And so I want to invite all of us to stand one more time. Uh, I've invited Mo and Laura Rascala to read uh, the final letter, which is Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 14 through 22. And this is the letter to the church in Laodicea. Revelation 3, 14 to 22. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich. Also buy white garments from me so you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. I correct and discipline everyone I love. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Mo. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, a question that I'm just going to start with right away is, did Jesus really say to this church, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. I am going to spit you out of my mouth. I don't know if you've ever spit something out of your mouth because it was going to make you vomit or you were maybe eating something and your gag reflex kicked in so much so that you literally had to spew out of your mouth what you just couldn't swallow. But Jesus' response to this church, it seems really extreme. It seems even borderline incredibly harsh because in what universe would it ever be okay to look at to someone in the eye and say, you make me so sick that I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. 
And so I think in light of what Jesus says, the question that we can wrestle with is, well, what would actually be a more loving thing to do? Would it be more loving to let people live completely unaware of their true condition before God at the cost of not only missing God in this life, but missing God throughout eternity? Would that be a loving thing to do, or would it be more loving to make crystal clear our true soul condition before God with the reward of enjoying all that God has for us in this life and throughout eternity? I think all of us would say, well, of course, it would be more loving in the latter for Jesus, for God to make us aware of what our true soul condition is, but we just have a hard time in the construct of love and rebuke. How do those actually work together? But Jesus made clear, he says in verse 19, I correct and I discipline everyone I love. So Jesus wants us to understand that to be rebuked, to be corrected, to be made aware of what you're not aware of is the most loving thing that he can actually do. So the question is, well, if Jesus is loving these people through rebuking them, then what would it actually take to get the attention of a group of people who were saying this? And Jesus, in his letter to them, quotes what they're saying. He says in verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. Like, what would it take to get the attention of someone who is saying, I have everything that I want. There is not anything that I actually need. I don't know if you've ever said that out loud or maybe thought that to yourself, but sometimes when we are convinced that all is well, what we need more than anything is someone who would love us enough to hit us squarely between the heart and eyes with the loving truth of you have no idea how unwell you actually are. If we're convinced that all is well, we don't need anything because we have everything we want. What's well, going to take someone who would not only love us enough to hit us squarely in the eyes if you have no idea how unwell you actually are? But again, then the question becomes, is there someone who would love us enough, but also know us enough, not just to give the external condition of our lives, but the internal condition of our souls? Jesus reminded those in Laodicea, this is who I am. When he says in verse 14, this is the message of uh, from the one who is the amen, the yes of God. He's agreeing with God's assessment, the faithful and true witness. So Jesus is saying, I can illuminate your true soul condition. I can see beyond the external because if we're honest, we can fake each other out. We can fake each other out with the things that we do, with the things that we say. We can try to somehow, even though it doesn't work, try to fake God out with just the appearances of things. But Jesus is saying, no, but I am the amen. I am the faithful and true witness to reveal to you where you are truly at, at a soul level. And so what was Jesus's loving and truthful soul assessment of this church in Laodicea? It was really one word. It was lukewarm. My assessment of you, Jesus says, is that you have grown lukewarm. They were a people, a community, a church that had unknowingly become lukewarm. They were neither cold or they were neither hot. They were not good for anyone or anything. And so Jesus makes clear, I wish you were one or the other. I wish you were one or the other. Be hot or cold, but please don't be lukewarm. 
Now, not to be misunderstood, Jesus is not saying to this people, I prefer that you'd really be on fire for me. Like, what I really want you is, I just want your soul to be on fire and passion for me. I, I want that, or I'd rather just have you be cold and not care. And I'd just rather have you be completely indifferent towards me. And I want you to understand, that's not even close to what Jesus is saying. Jesus would never tell someone, hey, I just don't want you to care about me. I want you to have a cold, callous, indifferent heart towards me. And so what Jesus is actually telling these community, this people, this church of, when I would rather be you hot or cold, he's contextualizing his message specifically for them. See, what you need to know is Laodicea was a very, very wealthy city. It led the people to say, we have everything we want, we don't need anything. But for a city that had everything, there was one thing that they did not have, and what they did not have was a water supply. And so they had to pipe their water in from miles and miles away from different towns, neighboring towns. And by the time the water actually showed up in Laodicea in their city, not only was the water lukewarm, but the water was filled with these nasty minerals, so much so that when you drank it, you literally had to spit it out of your mouth because it was such terrible water by the time it arrived in the city. And so the city to the north of Laodicea was a city called uh, Hierapolis. And that city specifically was known for having hot springs. And the city directly to the south of Laodicea was a city called Colossae. And Colossae was known for its ice cold water that came from the mountain snowmelt. And so hot water has this medicinal value. It has value for healing. And you look at cold water, it also has medicinal value. It has the ability to heal and to also refresh. And so Jesus, when he's saying you're neither hot or cold, what he's saying is you are not providing spiritual healing or nourishment for anyone. I wish you would be one of them. Be hot, meaning be helpful, be healing, or be cold, be nourishment, or be refreshment. But if you stay lukewarm, if you stay as you are, the consequence of that is, like you have to spit out your own water in your city, I would do the same. And so for me, this letter has just caused more soul-searching than any letter that I read in these seven letters because I'm asking myself this question afresh. Have I become lukewarm? I didn't even know it. Like, is there something in my own heart, in my own soul, that I've been telling myself, man, you're doing well, you're on fire, you're doing these things, but I've I become like them, have I become lukewarm, and I didn't even know that happened? As I've been processing and praying through that question, I started journaling out some thoughts on, well, what would be a profile of someone who has grown lukewarm and maybe doesn't even know it? And so I wrote down a few things that helped me understand what does a profile of a lukewarm person look like? And I'll share with you four. Number one is this, a silent storyteller. You see, we're all storytellers. We all have been given a story to tell. But when I see the profile of a lukewarm person as someone who's grown silent to the story that they've been told to tell. There's a, a great story in the Gospels, in uh, the Gospel of uh, Mark, uh, Jesus heals somebody. And this individual that Jesus miraculously heals at the end of the healing says, I just want to be with you. I just want to go with you. Wherever you go, that's where I want to be. And Jesus' response to that request in verse 20, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, no, 
Go home to your family and tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the question that I've been really asking, Michael, who is the last person you told all that God has done for you? Like specifically someone in your life who doesn't know God, doesn't believe in God, doesn't agree with what you believe. Who is the last person that you've told, hey, I just want you to know, this is what God has been doing in my life. This is what he's done. This is what he is doing now. Because what I've been wrestling with is the hard reality is we talk about what we love. We talk about what we love. We talk about what occupies our hearts and our heads. So if I find myself with great ease and frequency talking about Ohio State football because I love Ohio State football, I am left with the question, well, has my love for Jesus and what he's done become a lukewarm type of love? When it becomes so much easier just to talk about football rather than talk about what God has done in my life, has my love for God grown lukewarm? The second aspect of a profile of someone who's grown lukewarm is this, a songless singer. A songless singer. When you think about the songs on repeat in your head and your heart, how many of them are about being in wonder? In wonder of who God is, of what God is like. I think a verse that we often uh, maybe don't give much attention to and should, is the very first scripture verse in all of the Bible. It's Genesis 1.1, because Genesis 1.1 reveals something to us of who God is, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the very first thing that we learn about who God is and what God is like is that he is the creator of all things. So it's simply amazing to me that in light of who God is, creator of all, I can be so narcissistic in the songs that I'm singing in my head I can be so narcissistic in how much I think about myself and what I want and what I don't have and how people have hurt me or how people have wronged me. And the songs can be song, songs of anxiety and fear and worry. These are the songs that go on repeat. Yet, are the songs that I'm singing songs of just wonder and awe? Wow, the creator of the entire universe knows me by name, has set his affection upon me, and wants me in relationship with him. Like, if that doesn't lead a person to be in wonder, then I have to wrestle with the question, has my love for God grown lukewarm? A third aspect of, that I'm thinking about for a profile of someone who's grown lukewarm is this, a dusty Bible. A dusty Bible. When I think about uh, the battle that Jesus went through for 40 days when he was being attacked and tempted by the enemy, by Satan himself, in the midst of that temptation, this is what Jesus said, uh, but Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus could not have made it any clearer how significant God's word is. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so I have to wrestle with the question, has my Bible become dusty? And what I mean that for me is, am I just in God's word every day throughout the week because I have a responsibility to come up here and tell you something about God? Is that why I'm in God's word? Is that the only reason I'm in God's word? Or am I in God's word because I am utterly convinced that God's word has everything that I need? for life, for breath, for meaning, for purpose. 
And here's what's even more convicting to me. If I somehow can rationalize and justify in my head and my heart that it's okay to watch hours and hours and hours of football or ESPN or spend hours watching shows on Netflix or spend hours on, on um, social media, but yet I struggle to carve out just 10 minutes to sit with God in His Word, I really have to wrestle with the question, has my heart somehow, way, grown lukewarm towards God and His Word, the very Word that breathes life into my soul? And the fourth aspect, uh, a profile of someone who has grown lukewarm, I would say this, a dabbler in little sins, a dabbler in little sins. Paul says in Romans, well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? This is the mentality of someone who says, hey, I'm really good at sinning. God, you're really good at forgiving. So this is a perfect relationship. I'll just continue to dabble in the sins uh, that I've been committing, and because you're really good at forgiving, you'll just continue to forgive me. Should that be how I live my life? And Paul's response to that is, of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it any longer? And so clearly there is no such things as little sins, yet if I make distinctions throughout the day that certain sins are really not that big of a deal, you know, it's just pride, it's just arrogance, it's just lust, it's just worry. It's not really that, it's not like I'm just looking at pornography five hours a day. It's not like I'm just cheating on my wife or stealing money. It's not really that big of a deal. If I am just dabbling in what I have somehow deemed to be little sins, I have to wrestle with the question, has my heart grown lukewarm to God because I don't hate the sin? that separated me from God and put Jesus on the cross? Have I somehow taken a posture or attitude towards sin? It's not that big of a deal. Because if I have, then I would have to conclude, gosh, has my heart grown, grown lukewarm towards God? By no means is this the full profile of a heart that's grown lukewarm to Jesus, but where any of these things are a reality in our lives... I'm wrestling, and I'm inviting you into this as well. Have I, have we become lukewarm? So this is where I'm very thankful for how Jesus, he doesn't finish his letter here. The one who gives true assessment of our soul condition can also give us what we need, remedy and redeeming our lukewarm heart. And so the people in Laodicea, they had already told Jesus. They were very clear of, I don't need a thing. And Jesus just says to them in verse 18, I advise you, I counsel you, I instruct you to buy gold for me, gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. Also buy white garments for me so that you will not be shamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so you will be able to see. So I know in our context and culture, you're like, well, that's somewhat confusing. Why would Jesus tell someone to buy gold and garments and ointment for your eyes? Again, Jesus contextualizes his invitation specifically to the people that were listening to this letter be read to them. I mentioned before that Laodicea was a wealthy, the most wealthy of all of these churches that we've looked at, the cities that we've looked at. But they were known for a few things, three specific things that they were brought great wealth and fame to their city. Number one is they were a banking capital. And so they were looking to gold 
as a thing that would bring them everything that they needed. And because they had excess of gold, they thought they had everything. But Jesus is saying, no, the gold that you have is rotting your soul. But the gold that I can give you will actually purify you. You want to know what else they were famous for? They were famous for the garments that they made. They were specifically well-known for a black wool that they would make into clothing. And so how amazing that Jesus said, you're known for your wool and the wool industry and the clothing that you make, specifically this very famous black fabric that you make. But Jesus says, I counsel you, I advise you by white clothing. White clothing that you can robe yourselves with that will be a robe of not your righteousness, but my righteousness and then the ointment. They had a school, a medical school that was in Laodicea, uh, ophthalmology. That's what the school was. And so how amazing that Jesus says, this ointment that you are so famous and known for that's opening people's eyes, actually, I will give you something that will open your eyes to truly see who you are, what your need is, and how I actually meet that. So what I love about what Jesus does, he says, I have everything that you need. Everything that you need, I will provide for you. So the consequence, like I've said, of knowing the truth is that it will call for us to make a decision. What will I do with what he makes known? For the Laodiceans and all of us here who are being confronted with being lukewarm towards God, towards Christ, we have to decide today. Will we continue down the path of just saying, I don't need anything. I'm really doing okay. Everything is well in my life. Or will we respond to the invitation from Jesus to us? And this is such a powerful invitation that Jesus gives in verse 19 and 20. Be diligent and turn from your indifference. To those that Jesus is saying, know me, are following me, my invitation to you is as simple and as profound as I'm inviting you to turn or to repent from your indifference towards me. And then Jesus in verse 20 simply says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, and I can't stress enough the word anyone, not just some of you, but all of you, anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. This is the invitation that Jesus gives to this church and to all of us here. If you've grown indifferent, if your heart has grown lukewarm, not cold or hot, but lukewarm. Jesus says, I'm inviting you to turn from your indifference, to turn from the very things that have caused you to turn away from Christ. And if you're one who's not made a decision yet to say, Jesus, I'm going to look to you and you alone to be made right with God. He says, I'm standing at the door. If you hear my voice calling out to you and you respond, I will come in. And I know the language of eat and dine with you in their culture, that was an invitation to friendship. If you invited someone to your house in first century, it was a way of saying, I want to be friends with you. I want to know you and I want you to know me. I want to experience and enjoy a relational, personal relational friendship with you. So Jesus is saying, you've been lukewarm towards me, but I'm inviting you to turn towards relationship with me. So how will you, how will we respond to Jesus's invitation? It's a good chance that none of us here want to live lukewarm. I don't think any one of us would have the courage to stand up now and say, yeah, I'm I just want to be lukewarm. 
That's how I want to be. That's how I want to operate. So Jesus says, I give you everything that you need to turn from your lukewarmness so that you can be both hot and cold, helpful and healing, refreshing and nourishing. How will you respond to Jesus' assessment of your soul?